It is a long weekend this weekend, um, which means that some of you guys are celebrating Independence Day. And I'm glad you get to celebrate that because it is obviously overshadowed by Canada Day. Um, and so if you're celebrating that, uh, congratulations to you. Um, but also, in this moment, um, both of those are overshadowed uh, by the opportunity to come and worship together. Um, and so I'm really happy that you guys are here um, this morning. Welcome back, Bennies. Uh, what, what day did you guys get back? Oh, man. It's, they're on Europe time still and here worshiping with us. Uh, what a blessing. Um, we are in our second week of the Ephesians series, and we have the great pleasure of owning Bibles, which means we can read sentences again, we can be like, oh, Paul, what did you mean by that? And we can dig in. Uh, we can look at other translations. But this passage is so famous. I'm sure many of you guys have memorized it at some point in your life. Um, that I just want to take you back for a moment and present it to you uh, the way that the church in Ephesus would have first heard it. Um, it would have been much later in the day, probably around noon, um, because the early church didn't have too much money yet, um, so they don't have their own churches yet. Uh, the synagogue in Ephesus has just finished their worship service, and so they're just renters. And so they come in in the afternoon, uh, they pile into the synagogue, and synagogues back then were made specifically to hear the voice of God. So you would sit around on these uh, stone slabs, and the light would come in through the roof, lighting the middle where the Torah was. And in the shadows, you would sit, because you're not that important. What God has to say is important. And so they're there, sitting, getting ready for worship, the new Christian church, and a messenger runs in and he says, I have a new letter, a new letter from Paul, and it's to us. Now everything on the program is done. Like, we can, we can go back to that next week. We got to read what Paul has to say. And so believe it or not, guys, they sit and they listen to six chapters of Ephesians. I just want to read you the portion that we're going to be digging into today. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Um, let's pray. Uh, dear God, we're about to dig into your word a little bit. We want to explore what grace could look like in our lives. Um, and as we do that, I just pray that you send your Holy Spirit on myself, on the words that I say. Um, may you open our hearts. Um, wait, may we be ready to accept um, and be open to what you are moving us to do today. In your name we pray, amen. It's one of the most beautiful passages in scripture. For it is by grace that you have been saved. 
It's one of the best definitions of grace that we have in the Bible. It is not something you do yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You would think that it almost comes at a portion in the letter where Paul is praising God. This is who God is. This is what grace looks like. This is what is yours. But actually, when you look in the context of the verse, it actually comes right after a reality check. Because you see, the church in Ephesus has kind of gotten a, a few things mixed up. There's some people who are starting to think that God acts in a certain way, and they're a little bit wrong. And so Paul has heard some of this stuff and is writing a letter to them for a reality check. You guys know what a reality check is. Um, for example, you wake up in the morning, you take a shower. Hopefully, you guys do that. Um, after you take a shower, you get all nice, you brush your teeth, you look in the mirror and you say, man, I look great. I'm ready for the day. So you go to work or you go to school or whatever you need to do. You're smiling, you're having fun. Lunchtime comes around, you have to go to the washroom. You look in the mirror, you got broccoli in your teeth, your bangs are stuck to your face. Have I looked like this all morning? Reality check. Or maybe if you're a student, you know a reality check like this. You're in the classroom, the teacher is talking about a new concept. And so you're paying attention, and it makes sense. You take notes, it actually kind of sounds easy. And so the test is coming along, and you're like, yeah, I'll study a little bit, but I get it. Like, this will be fine. And you walk into the classroom the day of the test, the teacher hands you the paper, you look at it, reality check. I, this is all foreign to me. Um, a reality check that happens in my life a lot uh, is I actually think, I know this will surprise you, but I think that I am very funny, okay? <laughs> like, I really crack myself up. And so, when I'm at work, or I'm at the school, or I'm, I'm doing whatever I'm doing, I'm storing all of these funny things that I've done in the day in my memory, okay? And I'm just so excited because I'm hilarious. Like, if you guys live with me, you guys would be so happy. Okay? And I get home, okay? And I get home and I'm ready to tell Alina how funny I've been. Okay? So I start telling her stories of things that I've done, of little things that I've said. And she says, Oh my goodness, Mark, you said that? That's so embarrassing. I can't believe you say stuff like that in public. Reality check. You see, we all face these, and the church in Ephesus is about to face a reality check. Because in the party, there are Jews, and there are Gentiles, and yeah, they've heard the spiel. They've heard that everybody's supposed to get along, but they're starting to forget that and think, no, I got it right. Yeah, we let them in, but like, we could never let them do like these special roles. Or the Gentiles come in and be like, man, synagogues do things way different. Okay? The church, the church in Rome is way better. Let me show you how we do things. And so there's like a little bit of tension here. And what we went through with Pastor Darren yesterday starts. The letter starts. And Paul starts saying, you know what, guys? You are chosen. And the Jew in the crowd is saying, yes, I knew it. I told you I was chosen. And then he says, and you guys are redeemed. And the Gentiles are saying, that's what I've been telling you guys. You can't say I don't belong here. Jesus Christ has redeemed me. 
Paul knows exactly what, what I'm talking about. And now everybody's starting to think, yeah, I'm right. I knew it. Paul's on my side. And this culture, which I'm going to call the Artemis culture, is built into the church. And Paul needs to address it. What is the Artemis culture? Ephesus, as we heard from Pastor Darren last year, is a big port town. There's trade routes coming from the east, which is here, the north, the west, the south. All the directions people are coming in. And because of that, there's a lot of religions, there's a lot of churches, but there's one church that is not even like the biggest church in the city. It's one of the most famous churches in the known world. It is the temple to the goddess Artemis. The Greek goddess of... uh, animals and young offspring she has an arrow right and so people come from all over to worship and they have it all they have the music they have the trumpets they have the one of the seven wonders of the world is their church and so they know how to do worship and so they are starting to think man we got it down pretty good When people want to figure out how to do things better, they come check us out. Oh, hey, this little church is saying, hey, did you see what uh, the temple in Artemis is doing? We should try that. And that attitude is starting to come into the Christian church. We're starting to see pride. We're starting to see boasting in who I am and forgetting to boast in who Christ is. You see, as long as our worship our theology, and our lifestyle is me-motivated. As long as I'm the center, we cannot be living grace-filled lives. There's actually a word for this. It's called anthropocentric. Can you say that? Anthropocentric. It's a really easy word. Anthro meaning man, centric, center. It It really means man is the center. And Paul is writing here telling us, like, no, we can't be living like this anymore. And he knows that, honestly, for us, this is one of the trickiest parts of the Christian experience. And you guys know this well. It's hard to live centered anything around anything else but me. And this is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then listen to this. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. God's gift of grace can't be fully received. We can't live it out while our passions are in charge while the things that we want are the things that we do. And so the question for us this morning is, do we need a reality check? When you make decisions in your own life, when you make decisions about your family, what is the motive behind it? Who's in charge? Is it because you think it's best for you? It'll give you the most success? Or maybe, just maybe, could we shift towards a response in the direction of grace. And so there's like a little test that I think is good. We got to ask ourselves, what are we proud of? 
Because we'll say here later, like Paul says, what God gives us, we can't boast about. So a good test is, what are you proud of? Because it'll quickly reveal what your whole life is about. If you're about yourself, you'll be proud of the things that you've accomplished, the things that you've done, the ideas that you've had. And even sometimes in churches we do this. Uh, when my family was new to it, like Adventism, and we would meet people that tell us they were like fifth-generation Adventists or seventh-generation Adventists, which is not bad. Okay, because I know there's a lot of those in here. I'm not, I'm not demeaning who you guys are. But what, what does that have to do? Sometimes we just use it as pride, though, right? It can become those things. Your status, who you are, what you have done. It's easy, really easy, to boast about ourselves. And so Paul tries to give us an alternative, and it's living a life of grace. And this is what he says in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you are saved. Do you see that there? God is the active agent. You know, there's this thing in literary, in literature that we do to make writing exciting. We take things that are dead or inanimate, right, and we give them human attributes, right? So when we write about it, when we talk about it, it seems like they're alive, right? He was driving up to the church and the door welcomed him in with a warm hug, right? Doors don't do that. But we write about stuff like that a lot. And Paul's actually asking us to do the opposite thing. For us humans who are very well alive, he's asking us to diminish the things that we want in order that God can do this thing, and this is the wording, he can make us alive together in Christ. You see, grace is Christocentric, which would mean Christ at the center. And so in us, we have this want that we are the center, and Paul's like, no, Jesus should be the center. He who is the very essence of life comes beside us, Paul says, alive together, comes beside us who are the very essence of death, and he sticks to us, kind of like glue. You see, grace isn't, okay, I'm going to say this carefully. Grace is the gift of life, but grace isn't only the gift of life. God doesn't give handouts of life and say, here's a thousand years. Do whatever you want with it. That's not what it is. Grace isn't, hey, here's a bunch of rules that will make life great. Follow them. Grace isn't just proper theology or all these things. Grace is Jesus saying, I died for you, now let me stick with you. That's all I want. I am life, so just let me be stuck to you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. On your own, you don't have to live a certain way. Just let me stick to you. Because Jesus knows when he does that, he starts to rub off, little by little. 
Um, when I was in grade 11, I really wanted to go to this uh, tournament at Walla Walla University. It's called the Fall Classic. The only problem was it's soccer, and I didn't play soccer at all. But I really wanted to go. It was like the funnest trip of the year, apparently, and I never could go because I didn't play soccer. So I decided my grade 11 year, I was going to sign up for the soccer team. And so I go to the tryouts, and my coach realizes two things really quickly. Actually, three things really quickly. The first thing is that I don't know anything about soccer. Secondly, he notices that I'm pretty fast. He's like, oh, Mark's pretty fast. And then thirdly, he notices that I talk a lot. OK? And so the coach puts it together, and he says, Mark, you're going to be the defensive captain this year. And I, first of all, don't know anything about positions or soccer strategizing. I don't know any of that stuff. I've never, like, I still can't shoot a soccer ball very well. But he's like, you can communicate, and I'm going to be with you the whole time. And I'm like, OK, coach, but you should have a backup, because this is not going to work well. And so we do some tryouts, and I learn some very basic soccer. And on, on defense, you don't have to score, right? Basically, what I learned was like how to slide tackle somebody, um, run at them, and then tackle them so they would lose the ball. And then I learned how, if there was a ball, to kick it downfield as hard as I could so that we would be safe. Those were the two soccer skills I learned. And uh, I was fast, so I could go to the ball. That's, that was it, though. I couldn't pass to anybody. That was it. But my coach is like, you're still going to be the defensive captain. You're going to learn the rotations. It's going to be OK. We get to our first game. Well, actually, I wasn't even, gonna, I wasn't even thinking about this. But we get to our first game. Guys, this was the, my very first soccer game. The, they blow the whistle. The other team starts with the ball. They kick it down the field. They're starting to attack us. I'm like, oh no, what do I do? So much pressure. I run in from the ball. He shoots the ball. And he hits me like square on. And then I had to sit out for 20 minutes. That was my very first soccer game. Okay? I wasn't planning to say that. I just thought of it right now. But uh, after that, I got back on the field, and I was the defensive sweeper, which means I was the last man on defense, which is not where you want to put like, one of the worst skilled players on the team. But I was there, and he wanted just me to use my mouth to tell the other defensors, defenders, move here, attack, hold the line, move up, move back. And so this is what the first game looked like. I was on the field, and the coach was on the sideline, right in line with me. And he would say, Mark, move him up, move him up, move him up. And he would come with me, and I'd kind of watch him and be like, hey, guys, move up, move up, move up. We'd get to the line. And he'd be like, oh, Mark, go back, go back. So we'd go back, we'd go, I'd go back. And I didn't know what I was doing. But I was like, guys, move back, move back, just using my mouth, right? And then he'd say, hey, right side, right side, send Elliot, send Elliot. And so I'm here on the field. I was like, Elliot, go, 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 go. Get him. Elliot was a good soccer player. I wasn't. Elliot would go stop the ball. He stuck to me. And you know what happened? He started rubbing off on me. And so soon some of those motions, the way we moved the defense, I started to know. I would know when to send certain guys to attack the ball, when to say, hey, let's hold the line, when to say, let's play it safe. And I never got stressed. Because my coach, physically, like right in line with me, stuck to me. And you know, sometimes, because we like the grandioseness of the gospel, we say, I once was lost, but now I'm, right? We say, I once was blind, but now I, I once was dead. Yeah, that one you guys were unsure of, but yes. I once was dead, but now I'm, 
We like to say these things, and then sometimes in our own life, we say, how come it doesn't feel like that? And this is why I think we forget that what grace is, is not just the gift of sight. It's just not the gift of life. Jesus is saying, together, let me stick with you. My gift is me, together with you. And so I would like to suggest, please keep saying those great analogies, they're true. But maybe instead of saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found, what it really is, is I'm still kind of lost, but I'm walking with Jesus, so I know we're going to end up okay. It might be, I still can't really see things clearly, but I know Jesus can see the future, so I'm okay. And it could be, for, um, for some of us who are like getting old when we get on the court, I'm actually dying. But I believe in a Jesus who says, I want to give you abundant life. Because really what God wants to do is, yes, he wants to save us ultimately in full like, system theolo- theology. He wants to take us from death to life. But what grace looks like is I just want to stick to you. That's it. And so, what happens then? How does it look like? In verse 6, it says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When we say, okay, okay, God, stick to me. Okay, Jesus, you can stick in my life. God starts to be glorified. Okay, and this is where it starts to tweak. Because when you're saying, yeah, stick to me, do you see how when you say, Jesus, stick to me, who's at the center still? You, kind of, right? You're still kind of at the center, right? But he sticks to you, and God does his mystery. This is the mystery of how he works. Glory starts being brought to him. And then God puts himself, and this is what Paul tells us, in a position of kindness and mercy. So we say, okay, God, stick to me. And then God sticks to us and he says, okay, now I'm the main actor. Okay, I'm the lead. Now you're just the supporting cast. And so this is what it looks like. This is what a new identity in Christ, this is what we're going through all in Ephesians, looks like in regards to grace. If grace is Jesus being stuck to us, and he's the lead, then we have to be looking out, watching for how he's going to lead. And this is why it's not that confusing when we get to the work section of the text. Because that's sometimes where we get a little antsy. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I can hear some of us saying, see, see, like, yeah, there's grace, but you got to do good work still. But what it's really saying is when you're stuck to Jesus, God puts himself in a place where doors start opening all around you. And now you're just responding. Oh, God has this good work that he's setting up. I just got to fill in. God has this opportunity that's right here. If I look, I just got to do what he's calling me to do. And this is really hard to do. Um, this summer in the youth room, uh, I'm the youth pastor here, if you didn't know, um, we are studying the book of Acts. 
And we're going through our series, calling it More Than a Spectator, of now Jesus is gone, and these disciples, okay, these 12 guys, are having to learn a couple things. First, they have to learn that, oh, wow, God is still working. God is still doing miracles through the Holy Spirit. And now they have to learn, okay, now when this happens, what does God want me to do? In the first few chapters, it's a lot of sermons, okay? Like there's a miracle that happens and Peter tells a sermon. There's another miracle that happens, Paul tells a sermon. Um, Unfortunately, Stephen is being stoned, but he responds and he tells a a sermon. And Acts is this whole story of how do we respond to the good work that God is doing And those disciples can only know the answer because who are they stuck to? Yeah. Jesus is stuck to them. That's what it means to receive grace. And so I would like to uh, push you guys a little bit. I hope that you guys, and I know most of you guys have done this, um, but today, sometime in your prayer, um, prayer time, sometime in your devotion time, ask Jesus into your life again. Humbly, reflect on his sacrifice, what he has given you, and then say, Jesus, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for saving me. But then, take it a little deeper. Ask yourselves, am I living a life where I'm letting Jesus be stuck to me? Or am I me-focused some days and Jesus-focused other days? Am I me-focused when it comes to work and maybe like Jesus-focused when it comes to church stuff? God asks us to be Christocentric all the time. Let Jesus be stuck to you. Jesus gave his life for us, not just so that we can have eternal life, but also that he can be stuck to us, that we can be made alive together in Christ. So may we stop living like we are the center Let's stop chasing what we want. And instead, may we live in grace, responding to the good works that God has pre-planned and set before us. Amen. Uh, Dear God, I just want to ask that you remove pride uh, from our hearts. Um, May you remove the need for us to just follow our, our own desires and our own passions. Uh, May we be committed to living a life that is stuck with you. Uh, We thank you so much that you are a God who is willing to save us, and you are a God who is willing to walk with us. And may you continue to walk with us this week. In your name we pray, amen.